I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and ask that you would turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, and it's tempting almost every time to go through and rehearse everything that we have uh, studied, especially in light of having numerous uh, visitors here. But let me just briefly uh, say this, that this section that we have been looking at in Hebrews chapter 6 is in some way a a parenthesis, it's a bit of a a pastoral diversion uh, in order to deal with the hearts of the people. And he's taking away briefly from the main subject of his exposition. And the subject of his exposition, of course, is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus, and especially of late, that Christ is a high priest and even a high priest after the order of, of Melchizedek. Now that reference causes him to state his concern for some in the church that they're not able to handle this kind of teaching because they have grown dull uh, in their spiritual pursuits. They ought to be teachers uh, by this time, the time that they've been Christians, the time they've been under the word, the kind of ministry that they have set under, a number of them being apostles themselves. And yet here they are needing to go back to these elementary principles. And he's going to ask the question, is it possible that the reason why you are in this state is not merely that you are a sluggard, but that you are nearing apostasy? And he challenges them to consider where they are in regard to their attachment to the person and work of Christ. He then states that he has a hope that What he has just said, what he has just warned of, will not be so concerning those who are hearing this message, hearing this preacher. In fact, he says, we're persuaded of better things concerning you, beloved, the things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now, having said that, he has to say, however, I can't say that about everyone. I wish that I could uh, make just as I stand and uh, present myself to the congregation, speak of all of you as being on the same page. Some of you, however, are not doing well. And he says, what you need to do is to awaken in that condition and even follow the example of those who are striving hard after the Lord. Are there people in this congregation, are there people that you know who are pursuing the Lord and the things of the Lord and prospering in them and to follow their faith? He says in verse 12, not to not be sluggish, having exhorted them to diligence, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, this word is now going to begin a transition back to the main focus of our study. He's going to get us back to Christ and to the high priesthood of Christ and and a high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. He's beginning that transition now with these words. That word, the promises highlights something about the faithfulness of God. And now I pick up at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself saying, surely blessing, I will bless you. Or it could be translated, I will certainly bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply you. Or I will most definitely multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, that is Abraham, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, 
having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, let's pray and let's ask God to help us as we look into his word this morning. Our Father in heaven, what glorious words we have read and we thank you that we who have fled to Jesus for refuge have a God who speaks to us in this way. And Father, we thank you that you are trustworthy, that your word is certain, your promises are sure and steadfast. And Father, we pray that those realities would be graven upon all of our hearts, all of our souls, and aid us, especially, Lord, in those times of trouble, those times, Lord, when uh, our soul most surely needs to be anchored. Aid us and help us to see Christ, to see yourself, to see your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the most difficult aspects of any human relationship is in regard to the matter of trust. Can I believe what this person is saying to me? You go to meet a salesman and they tell you about a product and the whole time you're thinking, are they lying to me? Young lady meets a guy for the first time and he starts talking about himself and maybe begins to make certain promises to her and she begins to think, can I trust him? Is he really honest in what he's saying? Now, the Bible makes this point in numerous places. Proverbs 20 and verse 6 asks the question, who can find a faithful man? The psalmist says in Psalm 58 in verse 3, the wicked are strange from the womb. And by the way, this is referring to everybody. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Again, we read in Psalm 116 and verse 11. Now, this is an overreaction, but you understand it. I said in my haste, all men are liars. Everybody lies. Everybody has an angle. Nobody can be trusted. That's the idea that we can often have. Who who do we trust? How can we tell if a person is telling the truth? It's because of this wickedness, this fundamental flaw in our humanity, that we've had to invent things like lie detector tests. And it's for this reason when somebody comes to give a testimony in a courtroom, you don't just sit there and say, go ahead, say whatever you want to say. We trust you. No, you make them swear an oath upon penalty that they will say the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do you solemnly swear? And very often that is done with a hand on the Bible and another hand raised to heaven. It is to hold people accountable to their word that we have covenants and contracts. And even when it comes to something as wonderful and hopeful as a marriage, it is done with oaths. We come now, we say, in a marriage to a time when we will give each other vows. I vow, I promise, I swear, will you, I do. In the sight of God and these witnesses, that is, you, husband and wife, must be held accountable in order that you may fulfill what you have vowed. And so what I'm saying is this, that when it comes to people, sadly, quite often words are not enough. Now, this is why Jesus has said that we are to be so truthful and so full of light in this dark world that our yes can be yes and our no can be no. That is, people who know us ought not to have to say to us, are you serious? Do you mean it? Will you swear? Do you swear to God? Will you swear on the Bible that what you say is true? No, that when we say we are going to do a thing, that we do it because we have a new heart and a new mind and the law of God's written on it. We live in the fear of God and, and we care about the things that we say. Now, I've been talking about people, that people need to make oaths. People need to say sometimes, sometimes a person does need to say, listen, I am telling you the truth, my hand to heaven, I swear to God. You find me a Bible, I'll, I'll put it on it. I swear on my mother's grave, uh, the souls of my children, whatever, that what I'm saying is true. But do you know who else speaks that way? God speaks that way. 
It is striking to find that God himself, in order to show the sincerity and the certainty of his promise, would condescend to use such means. God not only speaks, but he promises, and he even makes oaths and covenants that we might be assured of the certainty of the word of a God who cannot lie. Now, again, as I said just a moment ago, over the past several weeks, we have been looking at this pastoral digression. I'm talking to you about Christ as high priest. However, some of you can't handle it. I'm concerned about the reasons why. All right. I'm, I'm, so he, he wraps up that exhortation by pointing them to those who inherit the promises. And he says, all right, now I'm, I'm going to build back up to uh, Christ as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, before I get there, I'm going to remind you of the certainty and the hope of the promises of our God. Because God swore and would not relent that he would make Christ a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you're going to get the comfort from that, and if you're going to anchor your soul there, if you're going to bet your eternal destiny upon the promises of God revealed in the scripture, then you need to know of the truth of your God. And so what I want to do, and this is part of the frustration sometimes of preaching, so we have, I know we have a number of guys here who want to be preachers someday. So again, all right, guys, real quickly here. First question you got to ask when you're going to preach is what text? And then you're going to have to ask yourself how much of the text. And this is one of these, it's like, where do I break? And I'm not happy with where I'm breaking. And I'm going to have to, well, you'll see as we go along. You'll say, I'm not happy with where you broke either. But uh, <laughs> what I'm going to try, what I'm going to do this today, I, I want to give two assertions and open them up and apply them to us. And the first is, this is more historical, and the second is more applicatory to where we are. The first is, God made a promise to Abraham. That's what we see here in the text. But secondly, God made a promise to Abraham's heirs. Those are the two things we want to consider today. And again, it's building up to the trustworthiness of God and how you can anchor your soul there because God is trustworthy. So God made a promise to Abraham. For when God made a promise to Abraham, you see that right there in verse 13, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So I want to consider three things quickly under this heading, the essence of the promise, the certainty of the promise, and the fulfillment of the promise. The essence of the promise. Now, he's going to highlight certain parts here of what we call the Abrahamic covenant. And if you've been in church, if you've grown up in church and you've studied your Bible, no doubt you have read or, or, or thought through at some point the Abrahamic covenant. Now, there is more to the covenant than what is brought out here. And his point here is not so much to open up the Abrahamic covenant as to show that when God makes a promise, God fulfills the promise. Okay, that's really what he's getting at here. Now, the Abrahamic covenant we first come across in Genesis chapter 12, and then it is given in an expanded form in Genesis chapter 17. I will read from the more expansive section, that is Genesis 17, verses 1 through 8. You can follow along if you'd like, or simply listen uh, as I read. We read in verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, very important part of the story. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. That's a rough translation of Abraham. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, 99-year-old. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants, or your heirs, after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, to the point of what the writer here or the preacher to the Hebrews is saying to them, he's going to focus on two things. I will bless you and I will multiply you. Again, I I will not just bless you. I will most surely bless you. And blessing I will bless you means I will exceedingly bless you. And you saw that there as it was given in Genesis chapter 17. And in multiplying you, I will multiply you or I will most surely multiply you. He is using this repetition in the original, blessing upon blessing, multiplying upon multiplying to enforce the nature of the promise. When I say I'm going to bless you, I'm going to really bless you. And when I say I'm going to multiply you, all right, so mathematicians, had, what do you need? What number do you need to multiply something by? All right, well, you don't need, you don't need to say, well, and multiply, well, it's got to be by a million or a billion or something like that. No, you can have small numbers with which you can multiply. But when he says to them, I will most surely multiply you, he's not just saying you're going to have a kid and some grandkids. No, but we know this from our Bibles. He says, in fact, your descendants will be like the stars at night, and they will be like the grains of sand upon the seashore. Now, again, what's fascinating here, and this is, again, getting to the, well, there's much we could deal with, but we want to remember he's making a point here with this. It's not just that God made a promise. That's a wonderful thing that God revealed himself and made a promise to Abraham. But it's how God made the promise. So look secondly here at the certainty of the promise. Now, when we make a promise or when a promise is made to us, it can, depending upon what the promise is and who makes it, it might be followed up with, are you serious? Do you really mean it? If I said to one of you guys, hey, let's get together on Tuesday and I'll buy you a hamburger. And most of you aren't going to go, do you mean it? Really? Honest engine? Really, Jim? You're going to, wow, that's amazing. But if I said to you, hey, meet up with me on Tuesday and uh, I got a brand new Mercedes I'm going to give to you. You might go, come on. It's a matchbox. Oh, my, you know, it's, it's, it's a toy. You're, you're teasing me. You're Because there's no way you could do that. And if you had the power to do that, why would you do it to me, right? So what what is the promise? Who's making the promise? So do you mean it? Are you sincere in what you say? And are you able to accomplish what you promise? Reasonable Tuesday, lunch, burger. He could probably do that. I, I don't Would you sign that? Would you swear? Can, can I get that notarized? You wouldn't need to do something like that. That's a reasonable word that can be reasonably accomplished by somebody with moderate means. For Abraham, the essence of this promise, this blessing, would be in large measure in association with a child. But there's a problem. So we have some newlyweds here. And if one of us said to them, hey, you know, Lord willing, one of these days you're going to have kids. Well, I think, what is it, 90% of married couples have children? So he said, okay, that, that, that's reasonable. But if they were 80 or 90 or 100, my mother's 97. And if my mother said, Jim, an angel appeared to me and said, I'm going to have another child, I'd be like, better check with that angel again. I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to happen. He was old and his wife was old. In fact, the apostle Paul says their bodies were as good as dead. That is when it came to this. When it came to fruit in marriage in this way, it wasn't going to happen. There's a day you realize, we hope we want to have kids, we want to have kids, and then maybe there comes a day when you say, it's just not going to happen. 
Biologically, it is not going to happen. We say, barring a miracle, it is not going to happen. So Abraham must think, if I'm going to have descendants, and if I'm going to have them, again, as vast as the stars and as many as the grains of sand on the sea, then it has to begin with just one. All right, God's promise needs to begin with one. But I can't make one, let alone millions. God, are you serious? Are you teasing me? And God, not only are you serious, are you able? Now, what could God righteously say to somebody who would say something like that to him? Who are you, O man, to answer back to me? Who are you, a mere creature, to say to your maker and to your king and to your judge, do you really mean what you say? You see, God could respond in indignation. How dare you, puny person, question my word and my power? But God, in condescending love and grace, promises He swears he makes a covenant. Now we are reminded that in a covenant, a man swears by something that is binding to him, something costly to him, something greater than him to hold himself to account. So again, if, I, if we go back to my silly scenario and, and, and I say, hey, Tuesday, I'm going to give you a brand new Mercedes and you say, well, will you swear? And I say, well, look, I've got here... I got a couple of nickels and I've got four, three pennies. I will swear on these three pennies. Where you go? That's hardly anything. But if I began then to make great attestations of truth, no, I promise you. I swear to you, now listen, I know you think I don't have the means. I know you doubt, you are, I understand why you're doubting me. Where could I promise or what could I say to you to make you believe in the certainty of my truth? Well, again, in in that world and in ours, well, I would want you to swear an oath. What shall I swear by? Well, something greater than yourself, greater than your assets, something costly, like upon your life. That if I am lying to you, may my life be forfeited. Now, what can God do? What can God swear by? Because anything and everything is like pennies. Well, swear by the earth? Well, that's his footstool. You know, in your house, I don't know how much you think about your footstool. If you have one. Well, that's, that's the earth. Well, what can God's, well, because there's no one greater, he swears by himself. And you'll see this phrase half a dozen or more times, especially in the prophets. I have sworn by myself. I have sworn. I will not relent. You are a priest forever according to uh, the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110, verse 4. It is that kind of thing. This is what I'm going to do. And in a sense, God is saying, by my life, by my honor, and by my being, what I say can be trusted. Does God need to speak this way? Is is there anybody in your life who is so honorable, so trustworthy, that you say to them, listen, but... I don't need a contract with you. Let's just shake hands. I know you. I know your character. I I know how honorable you are. There may be a man you can speak of in this way. And some people probably say, but you know what? It'd probably be wise to get a signature. But does God need to do this? Again, why do men speak this way? An oath or a covenant made among men was to be taken with deadly earnestness. If they spoke, hey, I'm going to do that, it may be a deception, you know, fingers crossed behind the back kind of a thing. But if they swore, especially if they swore by something great or swore according to their lives, it would, to use the language of the text, end all dispute. They signed the contract. 
And if they break the contract, we can sue them. We can take what we can take their liberty, take their honor. You know, they've got it. They have sworn it. And that contract or that oath is meant to be an end of your worry. If I can get them to sign, if I can get them to promise. Now, again, even with that, I know all men are liars, right? I mean, but you get the idea. This is what this is intended to do. Okay, I believe you, or at least if you fail to deliver, there will be consequences. You have bound yourself to faithfulness. But again, why does the Lord do this? Is God a shady character? Is he known to make silly promises? Is God known to tell lies? Is the Bible full of the Lord's deception? Has God ever said anything that he is unable to do? Has he ever made a promise that he cannot fulfill? Well, we say, no, of course not. He is, in fact, very light. He is holy. There is no sin in him. There's no deception in him, no impurity, no lie, no deceit. He is a God of truth. And yet, when he gives his people a promise, he says to them, I swear. As we would say, maybe say, I swear to God, and recognizing that that can be taking the Lord's name in vain for some. Because there is no higher. Ultimately, when you say, I swear upon my mother's grave, the souls of my children upon my life, there is ultimately nothing higher than to say, so help me God, or I swear to God, for there is no one greater. And so God says, as it were, hand upon myself, I swear by myself, as if to say, if I lie, if I do not fulfill, then I will end myself, because in a very real sense, he would cease to be God. Because this is a part of his total trustworthiness and faithfulness. And what God is doing in this, dear ones, is condescending to our weakness and to our frailty. So the hymn writer says, what more can he say than do you he has said? He's making an argument, isn't he? That, that in, in a sense, we shouldn't need the multiplicity of promises and we shouldn't need to have them as it were notarized and signed and sealed and given the way that they are. When God speaks, that settles the issue. And yet he wants us to know in our weakness and in our frailty and to help us in our need and with the stubbornness of our unbelief that I am faithful, I promise, and to allow you to live in comfort and certainty, I will swear by myself that what I say is true. All right, very quickly, now what was the fulfillment of that promise? Verse 15, Hebrews chapter 6, and so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Abraham did not give up on the promise. Now, again, initially, now we, we Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. Now, now, does that mean that he ultimately believed God or just that he believed him right away? Remember what Sarah's response was? Yeah, she, she laughed, and, and in doing so, gave, uh, they decided what their son's name was going to be. Uh, Isaac, which means laughter. She, 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 she laughed in her heart. I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily a mocking laugh. But almost that laugh of like, it's too, there's no way. There's just no way. Are you saying I'm going to bear a child? I, I have wanted to for 70 plus years. One disappointed period after another. One sorrowful reminder month after month that I was barren. I longed. I saw their women nursing their sons and daughters and I wanted to do that so badly. And you're going to tell me I'm going to do this at this age? Can it be? So he promises. 
And Abraham believes and he trusts and he perseveres. Now again, remember there was an attempt by Abraham to fulfill this by means of Hagar. Thinking, okay, well God must mean, because there's no way he's going to do it with her. Maybe me, because of the biological difference. There comes a time when a woman is past childbearing, but a man, even old men, sometimes have kids. It's not totally impossible. In fact, Abraham even beyond this, is going to go on and have more children with Keturah after the death of, of Sarah. But he perseveres, and he believes, and he loves his wife. And she conceives. And months later, they hold in their arms the beginning of the ful- ful- fulfillment of the promise. Now, one little baby doesn't look like a star field. And one little baby doesn't look like one piece, you know, is, 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 is one grain of sand. But if they're going to be more grains of sand, there needs to be the first grain of sand. And holding Isaac, he obtained or inherited the promise. God made a promise. A man believed and persevered in faith amidst difficulty Let's remember again what, what, what we're getting at in the book of Hebrews. He heard a promise from God and he persevered. What's the great danger among the Hebrew Christians? It's a lack of perseverance. It's a turning away. He persevered because God had made a promise that was certain. This is, again, what he's going to want to press to the consciences of the hearers. He endured in faith. I'm going to have a whole chapter on this later on, he could say to them, until the promise was realized. What would have happened to him and to the world if he had scoffed at the promise of God and stayed away from Sarah and did not love her and go into her? If he saw the circumstances in, in, of life and said, look, there's no way for God to work. I can make an Ishmael, but only God can make an Isaac. The promise would not have been obtained had he not persevered in faith. The joy would not have come, and nor would the hope have come to the world, humanly speaking, had he not trusted in God's promise. Now, as interesting as that may be, this is really a setup for what is to come. God not only made a promise to Abraham, he made a promise to his heirs, his immediate heirs, to Isaac and to Jacob and beyond, But the hope was not in Isaac and not in Jacob and not in Judah and not in David, but as we will see in another. So secondly, now, God made a promise to the heirs of Abraham. And I want to consider again the certainty of the promise, and then we will look at the essence of the promise, and then finally the hope born of that promise. Now, God helping us, God willing, I'll be able to come back in a couple of weeks, and we'll look at this text again, Pastor Derek's preaching Next Sunday, is that right? In the morning, I think. Uh, So we'll come back in in a couple of weeks. He says, now speaking to the heirs. Thus, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. God not only condescended Abram so that he could enjoy hope, he condescends to us so that we can have hope. All right, let's work through this. First of all, the certainty of the promise. Now, speaking to the heirs of Abraham, to his heirs, Now, there's something especially sweet here if you were a Jewish Christian. So we've had some Jewish, uh, ethnically Jewish believers here in the past, and one of them loved passages like this because, though he didn't want to say he was a better Christian than us, he kind of wanted to say, look, I I, I got it covered on all sides, basically. (laughs) I'm the physical seed of Abraham, and I'm the spiritual seed of Abraham. What about you? Well, spiritually, I got you. Well, it'd be that kind of a thing. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says this. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith 
are sons of Abraham. So the heirs here are not, you don't limit this to ethnicity. What makes somebody a son or an heir of Abraham's faith? Faith in Jesus ultimately is what he's getting at. For the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. What was that? That was the gospel. That means that this promise is not ultimately about land. It's about a man. It's about Jesus. So then those who are of faith, that is who believe in Jesus, are blessed with believing Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. A Jew, again, who trusts in Jesus. And again, now this is who he's speaking. He's speaking to perhaps an entirely Jewish congregation. And there is something to this here that I think is very meaningful that we need to understand in this. As much as we want to highlight the reality that Jews and Gentiles are one new man in Christ and the middle wall is broken down and he's made a new nation and a new man and all of the rest. A Jew who trusts in Jesus is Abraham's physical and spiritual heir. And to them, that is to those who, as it were, lived out the story of the promises, who lived through the waiting, those natural branches that Paul talks about in Romans 11, that when they study afresh the promises of God of someone and something greater who would come, they consider how the Lord himself set to fulfill this promise. Thus God, the God who swears, the God who makes oaths, the God who makes covenant, determining this is what's called an anthropomorphism. Does God ever try to do anything? Look, as a preacher, there are times like I get up and listen, I am trying to get you to see this. I don't know how to make it any simpler. I'm pleading with you to understand. Well, here it is. God saying this, looking, look, I, I am. You who are the heirs of the promise. And for thousands of years, that meant Jews who knew that promise and knew that there was something better than Isaac and Judah and Joseph and David and Moses and, you know, and Joshua. There was someone and something, there was something better than the land. There was someone and something better than just being a, a blessing and, and, and being loved of God. Someone was coming. And who knew that? Well, for thousands of years, there was one nation on earth that knew that and prayed about that and longed about that and who struggled at times with believing that it was going to happen because it wasn't weeks between the promise made to Abraham and it wasn't months and it wasn't years and it wasn't just decade and it wasn't just centuries. It was millennia that would pass. And he says, I want you to know, I've always wanted you to know that he is coming. That this is the immutability of my counsel. My counsel will stand. I will do all my holy will. I can speak this way because I'm God. But I was determined that to show you more abundantly that this is so. Because you needed it greater in a sense than even Abraham did. Because Abraham waited nine months ultimately and held the promise. And some had to wait again for generation after generation. And they would begin to think, and, and we'll consider just briefly one of these texts, as God, can he be trusted? Is it, is it all real? But in order to show us that God is trustworthy and that his promise will come to pass. He confirmed it by an oath. Again, so that by two immutable things, two things that cannot change, a promise and an oath, that we would receive the comfort from the God with whom it is impossible to lie. And again, there's so much here that we could spend many hours unpacking. And we may go back and glean through some of this again. 
God determining to show more abundantly than he did to Abraham, to whom he spoke directly. You think, well, that's pretty good. No, more than that, he has spoken to his heirs. The immutability of his counsel should not again need anything other than the fact that he said it. If God said it, he will bring it to pass. Because as we assert so often, God's word is forever settled in heaven. Not one word of his shall fall to the ground. Not one jot or one tittle shall fall away. His word is forever settled in heaven. When he speaks, it is ours to do what? To believe and to trust and obey. And we say, amen, full stop. But again, dear ones, the Lord pities us and our weakness. For again, this fulfillment would take centuries. He wanted his people, the long line of heirs, the Moseses, the Joshuas, the Davids, the Abigails, the Isaiahs, the Ezekiels, the Marys, the Annas, and the Simeons. To keep trusting, keep hoping. Because even after one generation after another died in hope of the promise, not receiving it. And so he promised, he swore an oath, he made a covenant. And not only did he do that, that, but he then fills his word from that time onward with types and shadows and pictures and promises. Lord, at the beginning, you promised that someone would come and crush the serpent's head. Now, if God had only made that one promise... We could say, well, God is certain. Going to be, I, I don't know how and when and where, but that's a promise, and we ought to search our Bible and find out where. But he doesn't just do that. He speaks to one and to another and to another and to another, and he gives this fuller and fuller picture. When God made a promise to David that of his seed, someone would always sit upon his throne. Well, you read in Psalm 89 that there came a time when the Davidic line was broken and the Davidic kingdom came to an end. And they were left, in a sense, this wrestling. Read Psalm 89. I'm, I, I, just, I don't really have the time to, to go through it today. But read Psalm 89 later and, and see the wrestling of a man who says, when God says it, it's true, it's as certain as the moon and as the sun. God swore he will not relent. He's going to do it. And then he says, but God, then I look at our lives and I look at our nation and I can't figure this out. Where is he? And you know what happens when we read Psalm 89? He came. And he rules and he reigns. Because we have the rest of the story. And they said, where is he? Will he not come? Is it not now? Lord, this would be a great time for you to come, right? We're in exile. The Greeks have invaded and are plundering. And and then later on, the Romans have taken over our land. Where is your promise, O Lord, right? And he says, listen, to aid you in your faith, who are the heirs of the promise? Those who came afterward, those who are, who make up the stars of the sky and the sand upon the seashore. Not just Isaac and Jacob, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob but all those who would come after, that they would know the certainty. All right, that brings us to the essence of the promise. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He says, have I, have I said and will I not do it? Have I spoken and shall I not bring it to pass? Yes, Abraham had a son who had two sons. And one of those sons had 12 sons. And we could go on and on and on. Some of those sons were kings and some were prophets, and, but none of them crushed the head of the serpent. None of them brought peace to the world. None of them bore the sins of the world. None of them sit at the Father's right hand. None of them intercedes for his people until the ultimate fulfillment came in Jesus. And so again, so that they would not lose heart as they waited and prayed and longed for the seed to appear, God swore to them all the more diligently I have spoken and I will fulfill. Again, God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs the immutability of his counsel. Confirmed it by an oath that by these two things in which it's impossible to lie. He swore it by an oath. Or two things, again, which he impossible for God to lie. His promise and his oath. These things are immutable just like his counsel. There's no politician or salesman making a promise 
or excuse me, he's no salesman or politician making a promise that either he never intends to keep or that he has no power to keep. If elected, I will end poverty. If elected, you know, whatever. Everybody will have a house. Well, okay, well, you have no power to do that. He's no politician. And yet again, to help them in their weakness throughout the long centuries in which the heirs of the promise waited, he spoke again and again and again, giving new insights, new promises, new truths, As our brother alluded to earlier uh, this morning, uh, passages like Isaiah chapter 53 and Psalm 22 and others that would speak about the glory of the Messiah. And for those who patiently endured, who did not lose heart, who did not turn away, who continued to believe that God would be faithful, not just to give Abraham Isaac, but to give to the world a savior. That he would be faithful. And that's why you read in Luke of the joy of a Simeon and the joy of an Anna who had so long waited. And they finally held in their arms like Abraham and Sarah held in their arms. This is the promise. And so others could hold in their arms a baby and say he's done it. He's fulfilled what he swore To fulfill, I knew he'd do it. I knew he'd do it. I knew he'd do it. Because God is faithful, but God also promised. And he promised over and over and over again, don't lose heart. He's coming. He's coming. And then to hold him one day and to know that he was here. Now, there'll be more about this later as the book unfolds. One generation after another, hoping that it would be in their day. But now the day has come. Imagine what it would have been like after all of those centuries of promise and then what we look at at times and talk about those years of silence when the last prophet until the Lord appears, the angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah in the temple and tells him that a baby will be born who will be the forerunner of the Messiah. And then some months later he appears in Nazareth to a virgin, one pledged, and then, 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 then appears to her husband, and from that time onward, what do we, what do we read in the scriptures? What, what, what highlights us for us now as we come to the gospels that it might be fulfilled, that it might be fulfilled, that it might come to pass, that it might come to pass. What God said he was going to do, he's going to do. Where God said he'd be from, he was from. What God said his lineage would be, his lineage is. And what God said he's going to do, he, he did. Right. All right. That brings us to see then the hope born of the promise. Hebrews 6.18 so he talked about the heirs, and we can say, well, that, that's us too. We're the, heirs, we're the heirs of the promise made to Abraham in this sense, that, that we are the sons of Abraham by faith. But now he says that we, so he's going to track, track as it were. There's Abraham, there's the long history of a people waiting. And then, as we know, the Messiah comes, that we might have strong consolation. So what's the purpose of all this studying? God's a faithful God. God made promises. God keeps his promises. Okay, thank you. Close your Bible. Let's go home. But Jim, I got to deal with real life things. I got a bad marriage and a bad job and society's going to hell in a handbasket. And he says, listen, what? Okay, grant it. Do you need strong consolation? Is there anybody here who needs encouragement? I can't. I think it's Vince Lombardi, the old football coach. I think this is him via Mark Chansky. So, but uh, how do you know somebody needs encur- How do you know if somebody needs encouragement? Check if they're breathing. They need this strong consolation. Well, who needs it? Those who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. So go back again in time for a moment. The days are hard. The book of Hebrews is not given during some time of spiritual utopia. 
It was as dark and helpless and hopeless a time as you could imagine, not just by certain cultural prognosticators, but it's all going to be bad, doom and gloom, the sky's falling, whatever, chickenlittle.com. And here, though, you have the reality and some of the promises of Jesus that judgment was going to come, and it was going to come hard upon Jerusalem and hard upon the people of Israel. So that's what's coming, but what is now is that their faith in Jesus is costly. And due to the fact that it was costly, some have, out of fear, forsaken him. But these, their fear, if I do forsake him, I may never be brought back to repentance. I may bring my soul into a condition from which I will never recover. But the fear concerning the days ahead do grip you at times. How can they not? Some have lost their jobs. Some have lost their homes. And even at this point, cheerfully so. But the fear is that in a, in a matter of time, and whatever it's days, weeks, months, and it wasn't much longer than that. Some of you are going to lose your liberty and you're going to lose your lives if you cling to Jesus. And so the preacher reminds them that the whole of their faith for thousands of years have been building toward him. You see, so what did someone do? Well, I'll just go back to being a Jew. Oh, you mean the promises of Abraham? And, and when are they fulfilled? Are you living in the promised land? Well, no. Do you feel like you're... No, those, those promises are met in the Jesus that you're tempted to forsake. So you're going to go back to the very thing that would point you to something you're going to try to forsake. The whole of their faith for thousands of years have been building toward him. You cannot forsake him who is the seed of Abraham, the one who will bring the blessing to the nations. The God who appeared to Abraham has at long last fulfilled the fullness of his promise, not in Isaac, but in Jesus, the promises of God are yes and amen. And when you hear of that one who was all that the prophets had said he would be, what did you do? So what, he's reminding them, what did you do? Well, you said, I fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that was set before us. What is hope? Hope is the confident expectation of good rooted in a promise made by one who is faithful. And God is faithful and he had sworn and he has brought it to pass. The Messiah has come and he's even better than you thought he would be. So that when you found out that he could and would save you from all that the law could not do, when you considered that he would fully and freely justify you, you fled to him to save you from the wrath of God. And you found refuge in the object of your hope. And God had spoken to you about him so that you would have this strong consolation. And having come to believe in that one that God had promised with such certainty. So what does it again produce in your soul? Strong consolation. Some translations render it as strong encouragement. It's a form of the word paraclete, paraclesis here. Something someone called alongside us in our weakness and in our weariness. So how many of you have known discouragement and anxiety and fear? How many of you, in order to face the future, feel sometimes like what you need to do is just bury your head in the sand and hope it will all go away? Turning off the news isn't going to change anything. Hiding in a cave isn't going to change anything. Just hoping it will all somehow get better, that somebody will get elected or things are going to turn around. Where do you go for strong consolation and strong encouragement? When you lift up your eyes, where does your hope and help come from? Listen, I cannot promise you, just as the writer here could not promise them, hey, things are going to get better. As he looked out there and preached, I don't know if he would have ever said, look, some of you are going to lose your lives. 
Your families are going to be torn apart. You're going to be eaten by wild animals. Some of you will burn in Nero's garden parties. But I'm telling you that Jesus is worth it. And remember that you fled for refuge to him, not so that things would get better, but because you needed a savior for your soul. I can't promise you things will, how things will go. Things will get better, however you define that. They may, they may not. But I do know that I am to take great encouragement from the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God and the certainty that he will bring about everything that he has promised. And he has promised fearful saints to bring about a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, I hope I'm alive to see it. You may not be, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen. And you can't get into the mindset that plagued some of those that Peter wrote to who said, well, where's the promise of his coming? And it's just, <laughs> he just came. After thousands of years, God was ready. And now you're saying, well, I don't believe God again. You know, if you'd been alive four years before Jesus was born, well, when's he coming? When's he coming? Three months before Jesus is born. Well, when's he going to come? When's he going to come? Simeon, you might as well just dry up and die. Anna, go home, pack it on. It's never going to happen. And then they hold him in their arms. And our hope, our blessed hope, is ultimately, again, in our Savior and what he is going to do. And we need to know that the God who was faithful in the past will be faithful to do what he's going to do in the future, and that is where our strong encouragement and consolation comes from. A consolation encouragement is not and cannot be rooted in favorable providence. For again, these believers in the short term, again, it got a whole lot worse, but that does not mean they lost hope, for their hope was not in things getting better. Their hope was rooted in the reality that the one who would bring blessing to the nations had come and that he had died and rose again and ascended to the right hand of God the Father and that everything was placed under his feet and that he is ruling and reigning according to his righteous decree and that he rules and reigns on behalf of his body, which is the church, the fullness of him who fills everything. And this is, as we will come to see more fully in the weeks ahead, what gives to us an anchor for the soul. You know what an anchor is, right? On a ship, what an anchor is to do. On a boat, what an anchor is to do. But where is our anchor? It's not down, it's up. Strange anchor. You don't throw an anchor upward. People don't. They don't try to hook a cloud or hook a rainbow, you throw it down into the depths, but we cast ours upward, and it goes behind the veil into the presence. And the picture is there, of course, of the holiest of holies, where God, as it were, dwelt behind the curtain in a special way. So when do you need an anchor, or why do you need an anchor? Well, sometimes an anchor is simply to keep you planted where you are. But other times it is thrown out in a time of great danger and instability. And so it is with our souls. Our souls may need to be firm and unmovable. Then toss your anchor toward heaven. It may be in great fear and turmoil and anxiety. A fear that is about to rip you apart or dash you on the rocks. Or that has thrown your soul into uncharted waters. And so take the anchor and throw it behind the veil. Throw it into the heart of the holy of holies where your God sits on his throne and ground yourself in the strong encouragement that comes from knowing that you serve not only a faithful God but a condescending God who is so earnest that you believe him that he stoops to speak to our fears with oaths and promises because he knows our weakness he knows our frailty he knows how tempted we are how quick we are to doubt him 
one bad day and all the character and all the promises of God are thrown into confusion. Dear ones, anchor yourself into someone, into something far more certain. For those of you outside of Christ, I I have spoken to you of the certainty of the promises of God. He has sworn. He has sworn to save those who come to him through Jesus. And he has sworn to deal with those who won't. God makes promises and God makes threats. And he assures us of the certainty of these things, not just by oaths, but by a history, a world filled with testimony of the faithfulness of God. I called out to him and he heard me. Are there others here who can bear similar testimony? I asked him, I sought him, I cast my soul, and he heard me. Don't lose heart. Go to that one who is able to save and willing to save all who come to him. Well, let's pray and ask his blessing on these things. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we do pray that you would take it and use it and bless us to our comfort, and Father, also for some to our salvation. We ask these mercies in Jesus' matchless name.